Hey, neighbor, 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 neighbor. I still need to watch that. That's not from a movie. Oh. You're triggered when, with your Vietnam thing. Oh, that sounds like the Good Morning Vietnam. That thing. No, the hey, neighbor, 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 neighbor thing. It's a funny story. Can I tell it? Can't wait. Yes. When I was in uh, Boulder hmm. as a deacon. So uh, the year leading up to my priestly ordination, I was assigned to St. Thomas Aquinas in Boulder with Father Kevin Augustine. And we, uh, my, I think it was my first time I was spending the night up in Boulder. And at three in the morning, some drunk kid was in the street up on the hill. And it's like 3 a.m. And he's like, hey, neighbor, 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 neighbor. And he kept doing that. He would do it over and over and over again. And I woke up and I'm lying in bed and I'm just asking myself, am I really angry right now? Or is that like really funny? Is that really cool? What, what year was that? That would Ish. have been uh, 2010, 2011. Oh, so it wasn't yeah. me. It wasn't you. It could have Are been you me. Sure it I, wasn't you? Yeah. I wasn't there. I had just left. If you would have said like 2009. Yep. Maybe in 2008. I don't that wild, I don't legitimately would have been very funny. When you, that, as you said that, when you were, uh, so was your, in your diaconate year. Yes. Would, so then did you have to drive? Were you living at the seminary and then drive to Boulder every day? Yeah. So in the seminary, the way it works, your diaconate year. So you have an assignment. As a deacon, you're ordained. So you have to have an assignment. And so I was assigned to Boulder, but it was only for the weekends. So Monday oh. through Friday, I was in classes. And I forget how we did it. We, you get one day off. I think as a deacon, they give you like Fridays off or Mondays, I forget. And, but then you're gone for the weekend. So I would drive up to Boulder. And it, it was an intense year because I had so a couple of shout outs maybe from all the way back then. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a very difficult, at least year in terms of it was very demanding. But it was a great year too. So that year I wrote my master's thesis. And so shout out Dr. Tim Gray, who uh, he, he was like, this, we're not really writing a master's thesis. He's like, basically, you're going to go for a doctorate, which never happened. But he thought at the time I was going for a doctorate in scripture. And basically, Dr. Gray was like, I'm going to kick your butt oh. on your writing, and I'm going to tear you to shreds prep you to prep you for doctoral work. And so it was so funny. I was writing my thesis and I'd hand in chapters and different things. And I'll never forget, Tim doesn't listen to this, I don't think, but he, there's one page I'll never forget that I handed in to him and he circled it like 18 times, marked up all kinds of things on the page. And then he got frustrated and he wrote in like this thick marker on the page and he said, could you make this any more boring? <laughs> yeah. I know. Gotcha. <laughs> right. Thank you, Tim Gray. Yeah. Love you too. But but it was a great year. And then I was in Boulder and Father Kevin Augustine, who ended up leaving the priesthood. I have a great love for him. He's a very good man. And I uh, honestly have a lot. I think 10 years ago, I would have, or more than that, I would not have really understood. And of course, we never want anyone to leave priesthood. And it's sad, but I, I understand in a way I would not have if I was not a priest. And yeah. so- I love Kevin. He's a fantastic human being. So shout out to him. But he was very demanding that year. He was, he's maybe the most gifted priest I've ever met. And wow. he, we became good friends that year, but he demanded a lot of me. He wanted 
And so I was being torn in like 18 directions, my diaconate ear. <laughs> and the companions were the third party. The companions were like, we never see you. Where are you all the there time? There it that's, is. That's how they sound when they talk. They're like, we're, you know, we don't get to see you enough. Back then, that would have been what? Just you, They're Father Nepal, Father... Oh, okay. So the, so the original four, Father Mike. myself, Father Nepal, Father Book, Father Rap. So we're calling them by their last names. Yeah. And then Father Brady and Father Greg Peterson had joined at that That's point. That's right. Oh. And maybe even Wunsch. Okay. Maybe even Wunsch. Goble, Father Wunsch. Goble ah. might, actually, I think Goble too. Goble was, he, it took him a little while to discern in, but he, I think he was part of things by then. It's been a minute since we went ahead and talked about Father Jason Wunsch. And what just, a loser. I just, again, I hope, I hope he somehow comes across this while writing Zwift for eight hours and just knows that I'm thinking of him while he's probably writing and like doing the mustache thing. Yeah. I Father Jason always like I twirls his mustache. It. It's, it's the best. His trademarks. Uh, how about, I'm going to throw myself a shot. How about me? The verbiage of diaconate year. Very good. I nailed it. You nailed it. I nailed it. You I'm nailed so it. stoked. The, I got a little nervous when I said it and I was like, I'm pretty sure this is it. You just got to say it with confidence. Yeah, you do. You just, go, do. just go with it. I went with it. Send it. Um, my shout out. This one actually was was really cool. So I was at um, the CU football game. I've now brought Gianna to two. At the CU football, Buffalo's football stadium. Buffalo stadium. That's right. <laughs> and uh, first of all, it's, the, it's like my Steph knows that's my day to shine. Like that is. Oh, yeah. Ever since Everybody I knows there, you. And it's, yeah, it's like. Ever since I played there, like I always dreamed of bringing my kids, yeah. you know, and like right now they're not letting people really get too close to Ralphie because it's the new one. And she's like, baby Ralphie, dude, she looks like baby Bambi. Like it is the baby Bambi could mess you up. <laughs> she hundred percent super young and so small. It's kind of like, feels like an oxymoron watching it. You're like, it's supposed to be this intimidating Buffalo. And then there's like little Bambi Ralphie running out. Um, so I'm like dying to get down there and take photos with Jeej. But um, I've been at the game. I was at the game and the Baselli's were there. This yep. is my shout out. Rick Baselli came up and gave the nicest compliment about the, co- the podcast. And it really kind of caught me off guard. And like some of those compliments that you get just walking around, I kind of forget people actually listen to this. And it's sure. not just you and me with headphones on talking to each that other. That is hard to remember, isn't it? It is. Like he came up and started, he like referenced a pod and I thought he was going to talk about like Bishop Barron's podcast or something. And I'm like, right. oh, wait a second. You're talking about ours. That's fantastic. But they are just such a wonderful family. Um, got to meet his mom, which was awesome. They were on their way to their, they left early because they were going to the uh, Brown Robe event. And oh, yes, for the Capuchins. That's right. So, um, and they live in my neighborhood, which is even better. That is uh, cool. So yeah, the Baselli's are a great. They're extended family. They're kind of a big Catholic family in Colorado. They're everywhere. And we've got Brian and Brittany. <laughs> That's right. Here at Lords, who uh, have kids at our South Campus. Their son, and we can get to our topic, but yes, their son Bryson. <laughs> he knows me really well because the Baselli's have been involved with our marriage That's uh, right. ministry, our engagement ministry, marriage prep, for years and years and years. I mean. Bryson has been on like 20 marriage retreats already in his life. <laughs> and he, um, but it's so funny. So he knows me, but at school, he has this thing where he won't, when I say hi to him, he like, he plays oh. too cool. 
He plays like Gives he doesn't. The cold mean, shoulder. Yeah, he totally does. I love it. And his it. parents even told me Brian and Brittany were like, "Oh yeah, Bryson comes home and he says, Father Brian came to our class today, but at school I pretend like I don't know him." I love it. I'm gonna start paying kids to do that. I'm tired of honestly. <laughs> I'm tired of walking around with you, and you're like the local. I feel like I'm walking around with like whoever Mick Jagger next yeah. to me down the streets on like 16th Street Mall, and then I'm over there just like paparazzi hanging out. Yeah. I'm a stage five clinger when I walk on the school with you. I need more Brysons in my life. I've been trying to tell you that. I know. And it's, it's really starting to settle in. <laughs> All awesome. right. So the Bacellis. And, and last one, shout out to them. But one last shout out. Yesterday, Morgan Rogers turned 24. That's right. Morgan is, is a sort of daughter to me. She's a wonderful young yep. woman. We love her. Shout out, Morgan Rogers. She's the best. This will be the test to see if they listen. That's all. That's the only reason we do this. That's right. <laughs> so today we're going to kind of pick up on some things we touched on last time. And we're going to pick up on the idea that Jesus is the new Adam. Mary's the new Eve. And maybe a number of you have heard this before, but sometimes I think Catholics and other Christians, they don't think thoroughly about how profound that is and the implications that arise out of Jesus being the new Adam which is clear in scripture. Mary being the new Eve is present in scripture. It's a little bit less explicit. It's first made explicit by St. Irenaeus in the second century, but it's certainly there in scripture, especially John's gospel. How, um, I mean, I'd never heard that. So last, last podcast was deep and um, you kind of dropped that bomb towards the end. <clears throat> so we definitely wanted to follow up on it. But when you say that, like how, how many, um, how many people actually like let that settle in because I'm new to scripture. How obvious is it? Unless you're reading St. Irenaeus, like once you, once is the question has been like been asked, then do you start to kind of wrestle with it? Or sh- is that something you should be picking up at well, a rookie level? Not at the AI, not, but at, the at, AI. not at the AI, but in, you know, my office in Erie, Colorado. Yes. Erie <laughs> Deveni. That's right. Office. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it depends. So, th- so the Bible is a big book. It's a really big thing. And I think, but there's, t- there's two or three really big places where this comes out. And the, f- the first one is Romans chapter five, but we talked about that last time. I think that's how it came up. So I want to turn to first Corinthians 15. So first Corinthians 15 is the largest, it's the longest chapter on the resurrection in the New Testament. And so St. Paul is wrestling a lot with the resurrected body and most likely because people in the city of Corinth in the first century are struggling to understand what that means. And there's probably people who are actually denying that we will have a physical body, which seems actually very clear from chapter 15. So Paul wants to go after that. So here's, here's how obvious it is, but you have to, you know, the Bible's a big book. There are 73 books within the Bible. And so More I don't, books than I've ever so I'm read. trying not to be judgmental here is basically I'm trying to give you a softball to be like, it's okay. If you don't know this, yeah. it's all right. It's fine. That's the point of it. Uh, you can light me up. I'm fine with it. Um, but it is a genuine question. Yeah. So, so here's what first Corinthians 15 says. Uh, it says, so this is first Corinthians 15, 45. It says, thus it is written. The first man, Adam became a life giving soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
Uh, But it is not the spiritual which is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, right? Genesis one twenty six. let us make man in our image and our likeness. Mm-hmm. But then Adam's image, and we'll get to this in a second, is handed on in our human nature. But he says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So Paul's very explicit here. There's the first Adam and there's the second Adam. What are you laughing yeah. at? Yeah, well, when I, you know, I think of two Adams. I'm like, who's this other Adam? Yeah. And it, it, it's it, Jesus. Real explicit would be there was Adam of hatch or of dust, and then Jesus of heaven would yes. help me out a lot. Yes. I need that in the cliff notes. Yes. And then the other one, maybe we should look at Romans 5 just very briefly. Romans chapter 5 is very similar. Um, Romans 5 is the most explicit place in the Bible where the uh, dogma of original sin is taught. Uh, It's most clear there, but it is present in Genesis 3 through uh, chapter 11. But here in Romans 5, it's the most explicit. So Romans 5.12, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So who's the one man? Adam. Adam, right? So that's, that's pretty clear. Yeah. As sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. That's Adam. And so... uh. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Yep. That's, that's original sin. Yep. So it spreads everywhere. It's universal. Sin is universal. Sin indeed was in the world. I'm going to skip this part actually. But in verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So what that means is a prefigurement. Got it. When it says Adam was a type, that means prefigurement of the one who was to come. And then verse 15, so here's where it's going to get into Jesus a little bit. And it's going to contrast Adam's sin with Jesus's act of redemption. So it says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, I always say those are my two favorite words in the New Testament, much more in Romans (laughs) 5, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ abounded for many. So there's one man, so Paul calls Adam the one man, but then there's another man, the one man, Jesus Christ. And this strikes at the heart of something that a lot of Christians, I don't think we always think of as being at the heart of the gospel, but it's at the very center of the gospel is that Jesus is not merely here to kind of pay the debt of our sin and take us to heaven. He certainly is here for that. Jesus is here to restart the human race. Yeah. And so because he's the new Adam, Adam was the founder of humanity and Jesus is the founder of the new humanity. Switchfoot used to have, uh, there's an old song from Switchfoot called uh, new way to be human. And they're, they're referencing this, the, 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 the old way to be human was to be like Adam. It was to disobey God. It's to live life for yourself. Yep. It's to say, Hey, I don't trust you, God. I'm going to eat from the fruit of the tree. I'm going to do things my way. And I'm going to, live life as I see fit. But Jesus provides a new start for the human race. And so those of us who have been baptized, 
and who have been uh, made partakers of the life of Christ, that's what sacraments do, there's a new way to be human. There's a new human race. And uh, so logically, this leads to, if there's a new Adam, wouldn't it make sense to say there's also a new Eve? Eve? Oh, it's deep. Now, it's not going to be the same, but we'll get to that, maybe. Okay, so my... My ego does not want to ask this because I don't want to sound stupid. Uh, but circling back really quick though, and in that, um, I'm going to defend myself because never once in my life have I actually read, I don't know about read, but used prefigurement. Yes. Uh-huh. What does that mean? So like a foreshadowing? Yeah, it's a foreshadowing. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So for instance, a great, the easiest one in scripture maybe to think of with this is... Um, So in Genesis 22, Abraham takes Isaac up a mountain. Isaac, if you do the math, is a grown man at this point. And Isaac carries a bunch of wood up on his back. He climbs a mountain. Abraham's like 110, I forget, at that time. And which means that if Isaac's a grown man and Abraham's 110 and Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac, it means that Isaac actually did it freely. So Isaac carries a bunch That's of wood right. on his back in obedience to his father, goes up a hill to be sacrificed. Um, and there's a, um, a ram that gets its head caught in a, in a thicket, which should remind us of the crown of thorns. But anyway, this, the early Christians look at this and they say, this is a prefigurement or a foreshadowing of Jesus. Whoa. Okay. There's a son who goes up on a mountain and only son as Abraham calls him at least. Got it. You see the pattern. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, it's deep. Okay. So, so Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. And so, so I think one of the biggest points here, and we're, what we want to kind of get to today, building off of last week, is there's a really controversial question for a lot of people, maybe not present in their minds, but once they hear what some of the church fathers say about this, they're kind of shocked. But we're, we want to talk a little bit about celibacy. And we're going to get to that. But really quick, let's talk about why is Mary the new Eve? And I think to understand this, one of the coolest things, and this is, again, these are such amazing things in scripture. But in John's gospel, John begins his gospel and he says, in the beginning, John 1, 1, he says, in the beginning was the word. And for most of us, what, what, and not just for most of us, for all of us, what St. John wants us to hear there, if he says, in the beginning was the word, what is that reference? The word of God? It does reference the word of God, but what in the beginning was the word? What, is that, should, what should that remind us of? Genesis? Yes, very good. Yes. So the very first words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mm-hmm. And so John begins his gospel and he says, he has the same start, right? In the beginning... Uh, was the word. Well, how, in Genesis chapter one, how does God create the world? Breathe, breath. Not breath. breath. The, so the, the spirit of God is hovering on the waters, but you said it, yeah. Spoke. He spoke, and right? existence. So that's what God does, right? When, when he said, when he creates light, how does he create light? He says, let there... Claps his hand. <laughs> clap, <laughs> clap on. Clap off. Clap on, yeah. <laughs> let there be light. He says, let there be light, and there yeah. is light. So God speaks creation into existence. And... So John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. word. And so John wants us to understand, and the word is going to be in John's gospel. The word is Jesus. He is the word of God. And 
John, right at the start, wants us to understand that this is a new beginning. It's a new Genesis story. Because in Jesus, the world is made new. new. There's a new beginning. He's the new Adam. So what happens in John 1, you get all these themes that should echo the Genesis story. So uh, in, in John chapter 1, uh, verse 9, it says, uh, even actually you go back to verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, the first thing God creates in Genesis is light. And so John very obviously, very clearly wants us to to be hearing echoes of Genesis chapter one. Have the context for it. Okay. So so I could quote a bunch of scriptures on this, 2 Corinthians 5.17. I've quoted on the show before, on the podcast. It's one of my favorite verses. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has, or the old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. Jesus makes things new. He makes the world new. There's a new start for humanity. It isn't just that, oh my gosh, things went wrong, but now there's a solution. It's that God wants to remake creation. He wants to make all things new. And so Jesus is the new founder of the human race. He, where, where things went wrong in Adam, they're going to go right with Christ. So one more piece to John chapter one. We don't have time for this, so I'm not going to, kind of outline this for all of you, but in John chapter one, John starts counting days. And so for instance, um, in verse 29, he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Uh, And then verse 35, the next day, verse 43, the next day. And eventually what you do, you get to Genesis, or sorry, John chapter two, verse one. And it says on the third day, and that throws people off because they're like, wait, are we going, because you've got up to four days in chapter one. And then chapter two, verse one says on the third day. So you might think, are we going backwards today to yeah. the day before? But he's counting three days from day four, which puts us at what day? Seventh. At the seventh day. So here we're going to get to Mary's new Eve. So it's the seventh day. So, so John and all this goes together, right? He's talking about the Genesis story. Genesis one has seven days. Guess what? John one and two have seven days. Yep. And the seventh day in Genesis one leads us to the creation of Eve. And so in a lot of ways, you could say that the seventh day in Genesis 1 is a wedding feast. And John chapter 2 is the wedding feast of Cana. Is that amazing? That's crazy. I love that stuff. And so John, John 2 lands us at a wedding feast. And guess what? Guess who's at this wedding feast aside from Jesus? Mary. Mary. Boom. Boom. On this, yeah. On the seventh day, we find Mary at a wedding feast, and Jesus speaks one of his more controversial words to to Mary, where she says they're out of wine, and he says "T emoi kaisoi gune." <laughs> I love saying that. That's the Greek, <laughs> but he says, "What is it to you and to me, woman?" Yeah. Well, why is and people are like, isn't Jesus being super disrespectful there? Totally. Steph would not be pumped if I said. What is that to me and to you, woman? (laughs) Woman? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, Well, if you're on the seventh day and Jesus calls someone woman and we're evoking the Genesis story, who does that sound like? Yeah. Eve. It it sounds like Eve. Right. Because at this wedding, at the culmination of the creation story, uh, you have uh, Adam in Genesis 2. He says, 
this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for out of her man this one has been taken. Is that amazing? Dang, that gives me chills. Yeah. And this is the deep wisdom of the church in seeing these things. The other place that Jesus does the same thing also has an echo of the creation story, which is in John chapter 19, when Jesus is on the cross. Yep. So John, so I could go on forever about this. I know one of the big things I should just mention in passing here, Mary is not Jesus's spouse. There's something different there. That's not, the, the analogy is not perfect. And the parallels are not perfect. But Mary becomes in Genesis or in Revelation chapter 12, uh, it's going to talk about how this woman who gave birth to the Messiah, we don't have time to go through all this, but this woman gives birth to the Messiah in Revelation chapter 12, which some people say is the church. Yes, that's true. But it's also Mary. Mary gave birth to the Messiah. Yep. And it says that the devil goes off to make war on all of her offspring, on all of those who keep the commandments of God and bear witness to Jesus. In other words, Christians. This, yep. mother, this woman is the mother, it says in Genesis, or Revelation 12. It says this woman is the mother of all Christians. And in John 19, Jesus gives Mary to, to the beloved disciple. That's right. And there's, there's incredible parallels here. But anyway, part of the good news of the New Testament is there's a new start for the human race. And if, for those of you listening out there, I love this stuff. There's a new start for you and for me. That, that the brokenness that we inherited from Adam and Eve in our life and the distrust of God and the sinful kind of world we find ourselves in, because of what happened, of course, in Jesus, and he's not on par with Mary, but Mary became his helper, not because she had to, but because God willed it so. But through Jesus and in a secondary way through Mary, can you tell I'm being very nuanced here? Yeah. Through Jesus and Mary, there's a new start. There's a new human race. There are humans now who can be faithful to God, unlike Adam and Eve. It's a good sigh. In the, <laughs> that's deep, dude. Uh, in the words of Dwight Schrute, question. <laughs> yes. Now, do I, does that mean I have to be, what's his name, Michael? Jim or Michael, yeah. <laughs> what's his last name? Uh, Michael Scott. Yeah. Jim Halpert. Either Michael one. Scott is him. Michael Scott. Because yeah. um, I, whenever I think of it, I think of Dwight Schrute is the, uh, the one where he says, can I be assistant regional manager? <laughs> but he's assistant to the regional manager. Yep. Yeah, that's a great line. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's the best. Um, so, okay. This is probably a totally separate podcast, but when, when I hear, you know, that there's a new create, there's a new um, Jesus came and is the new Adam. And what he did, yep. Gosh, how do I say this? Um, God sends His only only Son, yep, to Earth to be sacrificed, crucified for our tracking, yep, for our sins. Go on. But yet, and and He gave us like an a blueprint. Okay, he he could more than that, but yes, right, uh, blueprint. You know, like the commandment. He did. He, he gave going. us a guide. I don't throw you off. No, he Go gave ahead. us a guide. But why not? If you're going to go through that and have that ultimate sacrifice, uh-huh. why not actually solve it? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, yes. there's still like, sure, we can be Christians and live in the Christian manner. Yet, 
being a Christian is almost more difficult than ever. And we still have those same Adam and Eve original sins yes. that we battle. Correct. Why not, why not just go ahead and eliminate that, that temptation that, you know, why leave a little bit of, I guess, free will in it yep. if you're going to come back and defeat your ultimate enemy, Satan? So only God can... Uh, judge me now? Can judge you. That's also true. That's not what I was going to say. That's also true, though. But I, uh, Balthazar has a great, uh, in one of his books, Theodrama Volume 4. Uh, oh, I'm on Volume 3. This is why. You're on Volume 3. Yeah, I thought so. Perfect. I thought I saw that in your desk That's the other correct. day. But he talks about, he ta- there, there's a, there is a mystery here, and he explains this, of course, better than I ever could. But he talks about the, the interplay between what he calls finite and infinite freedom. And what he means by that is that you and I have finite freedom. Right, we we have we really do have freedom. It's real, yeah, but it's not infinite, right? I can't. I mean, as much as not to not to just throw a throwaway line on this. In fact, I'm just going to skip that. I'm not going to say that. I what if I say this? I have freedom, and I can make decisions about being healthy, and I could I could drink a little less red wine, and eat you know not as much pasta and ice cream, and I could be more fit than I am now. So I have that freedom. I don't really have the freedom uh, to be uh, Tom Brady. Got it. Right. Yep. Like yeah. my, my freedom has a limit. That's right. As much as I might choose, but God's freedom is infinite. Yep. And so what, what Balthazar is going to get at to, to get to your question is God can be infinite free, infinitely free in a way that somehow can accomplish that goal, but also doesn't take away our freedom. Got it. We can't do that. Yeah. And I think, and I think what God, he did solve it in, in a sense, but you're right. It doesn't feel like that. I'm still like, man, crap, I, I stink. I'm not very courageous. And we have all these problems with different things at the church. And I wish I had more courage and I wish I had less sin in my life. And why is it so hard? Yeah. And that's, that's a real question. The catechism, I was reading that today actually about that. But I think, I think part of it is that it's, it's an analogy I've used with you before, but I think of Gianna. Yep. And when she's, you know, when she's eight years old, I don't think she's going to get picked on because she comes from you and Steph and she's going to be like the beautiful, you know, athletic, strong. She's going to be picking on other kids, honestly. <laughs> but I hope so. Hopefully. Oh no, you hope Otherwise not. dad's got to step in. Yeah. Go ahead. But, but, it, but, it, but if she was getting picked on, one thing you could do is go fix the problem. Yeah. But what you might do is, is wise parents is you might say, well, honey, we're going to, we're going to fix like some, some of the problem here, but we want you to grow up to be strong yeah. and mature. And because of that, we actually think this, this tough thing at school that you're going through where, you know, your friend made fun of your My Little Pony backpack. We want you to face that girl and talk to her. Yeah. And I know you're scared of doing that, but, if, but you, as a good parent, by doing that, you're going to train her not just to have her problems fixed, but to become a certain type of person. Totally. Okay. It's something yeah. like that. Yeah. That's fair. Um, okay. So then, and I know you've talked about this before too, but so Jesus came and basically had to fulfill um, the Jewish thinking and there's a the whole lineage and all that kind of stuff. So is that why, and obviously we're talking about Mary being the new Eve, right? but it was imperative that Mary birthed the Messiah to fulfill the lineage 
scenario for the Jews back then? Yeah, the lineage is, that's an interesting question. The lineage tends in Matthew chapter one and Luke, um, what is it, Luke chapter three? I'm always, this is the one I forget. But the, the two genealogies in the gospels, they, um, yeah, Luke three, they trace Jesus's lineage through the father because that's what Jews did in the time. Okay. But they, they're more tracing, but it's more about Jesus and Adam. Got it. So Luke traces it back to Adam. Got it. All the way to the first man. Yeah. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy to David and to Abraham because of the promises God made about the Messiah coming from Abraham and from David. Got it. That's why. And Matthew's writing to Jews. Luke is writing to non-Jews. Okay. So Luke, it makes sense for him. He's like, no, like I'm going to trace Jesus back to the father of all human beings. Jews trace their genealogy and they would go back to Adam, but but really they see Judaism really starting with Abraham. Got it. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, uh, so Mary is the new Eve. And so, so the reason what we want to talk about today is celibacy. Yep. And so the, this is a really sticky topic. We like picking sticky talk <laughs> topics. Somehow it's, it's one of the, in my years of it, not years, I mean, only a few years, but attending RCIA, it yeah. always gets brought up. It's intriguing, I think, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, I think, and I think part of this, and let's just be honest, is I think as adults, um, sexuality is a hot topic. Yeah. It just always is. And it's a hot topic because, you know, there's a lot of us struggle with sexuality. And I don't just mean the transgender or right. LGBTQ kind of stuff. I don't mean that. I just mean how do I love my spouse and how do we integrate our sexuality in a way that's, that's really healthy and loving and how do we navigate that? And I think that's, I mean, I'm not married, but I think that's hard for a lot of couples. Yeah. It's a, it's a struggle, but it is a hot topic. And the teaching of the new Testament and the early church is unbelievably profound, but I've, t- I've talked on this before and just shocked people. I, I remember the first time I heard it. Yeah. One time I went to a mom's group. It was hilarious. Oh my gosh. Shout out Danielle Rudolph. Danielle Rudolph had this mom's group and they were, she was like, Hey, FB, could you stop by and just kind of like lend us a voice of support and just say hi to every, all the moms and you know, I'm behind you. That'd be great. So I said, sure. And I went and they had a real speaker that day. They had Dr. Susan Sonner, right? Oh who is brilliant and someone I look up to immensely yeah, and just a wonderful, wonderful woman. Well, she, something happened. She couldn't make it. <laughs> and so walks into the fire, right? And so Danielle looks at me and she's like, FB, we need a speaker. We're subbing you in. She said it just like that. By the yeah. Way. And I ended up talking and we're, we can get to this, but essentially many of the church fathers and the new Testament the New Testament doesn't say this explicitly, but we'll, we'll talk about it. The many of the church fathers teach that Adam and Eve did not have a physical sexuality in Eden. That that only takes place after original sin. And so I, I of course, being the knucklehead I am, I walk into this group. There's like, seriously, there's like 60 moms. Yeah. It's like 60 moms in a mom's group. And I'm like, what should we talk about? I'm like, hey, let's talk about Eden. Hmm. Let's talk about this. And it was hilarious. And I always joke, I, I imagine those women went home and 
they're talking to their husbands and like, well, how did the mom's group go? And well, father Brian taught that, you know, sexuality is an effect of the fall. And I'm sure the husbands (laughs) loved hearing that. Totally. I could just picture, and I know it too. You walked in, you're like, okay. So I was reading one of Baltazar's books today and you were so stoked about what you read that morning. And you all of a sudden you dove right into the deep end in mom's group. That's right. (laughs) This is, this is the mistake that I make on so many levels, (laughs) so many levels. So the interesting thing though, this, this topic is so fun for me because I'm a celibate. Yeah. Uh, And celibacy is, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing, you know, it's, and you've heard me on the podcast. We joke about, about this reality. Celibacy is hard. And it's also a big, it's a huge topic out in the world. And what I found is that when people talk about shouldn't priests get married, they don't wrestle with that question the way the early church did. The way that the, and the way the New Testament wrestles with this is much, much, much deeper than the common average conversation about this. And, and right now in a dark time in church history, where we have, you know, France just had their equivalent of the United States report on sexual abuse. Ugly, 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 terrible stuff. Yeah. And that triggers a lot of questions around like, well, if, if priests were married, wouldn't we not have these problems? And I think that's a fine question to ask. I don't, I don't think that the answer is for priests to get married. In fact, there's plenty of studies that say that's not the real issue. Yeah. But it's a fine question to ask, you know? (sighs) I don't, I don't think that's. Um, I think it's a fine question to ask, but I don't think that would solve it. Yeah. I feel like there's psychologically more going on that it, it, it'd be like saying, you know, people are sleeping around, just have them get married yet. You're still going to have affairs. Like, right. There's a lot in these reports that, um, happened in closed doors that I think if you have a, a wife and now all of a sudden it just becomes a facade. Sure. Um, I don't know. That's off topic, but. Well, and so, and, yeah, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too much, but the, <clears throat> well, here's what the church fathers say. And one more thing. So, so we set this up in such a way. So, and this is what I meant when I said at the very beginning today that people don't let the reality that Jesus is the new Adam and Mary is the new Eve. They don't let that sink in to a really deep level. And, and Paul loves to talk about this. Another, another place, if you want to, I won't read it right now, but if you want to look at this, read Colossians 2 and 3. And Paul there is going to talk about you're the old man and the new man. And he's referring here to, to Adam and Jesus, but he's referring to Adam and Jesus inside of you. And he's going to say, you used to be like Adam. You were yep. disobedient towards God. You lived for yourself. You did things your own way. But when you were baptized, something happened and you were inserted into the new man, the new founder of the human race, Jesus Christ. And he says, therefore, and this goes back to your question about freedom. Why doesn't God just fix everything? Paul says both. He says, well, what already happened? You got baptized. So God, in a certain sense, already claimed you. He already won the victory in you. But now he says, basically, act like it. Act like that actually happened, because it did. Give a man just, a fish or teach a man to fish. Or teach a man to fish. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And um, so... The other passage I wanted to bring up here is uh, in Mark's gospel. It's in Mark chapter 12. And this is another key, just kind of, we don't think about these things. So if Jesus and Mary are the founders of a new human race, why are they both celibate? Yeah. Why is that? Is that just an accident? 
Is it just because, and what I, I think what most of us, if we think about this, which I don't think most people do think about it, but you know, I can imagine most people thinking, well, it'd be kind of weird to be Jesus's girlfriend. You're like, yeah, made out with God yesterday. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people think of it kind of on that level, but there's something much deeper happening. So in Mark, I'm not going to read it all, but in Mark 12, 18 through 27, there's a, there's a question the Sadducees have about the resurrection. And they bring up, do you remember the story where they bring up, there's one woman, she married a guy, he died before they could have children. Then there's seven brothers and each one of them marries this woman, but none of them had kids. And they say in the resurrection, and they're trying to disprove the resurrection is the context. Got it. They say, whose wife will she be? And so here's Jesus's response. Jesus said to them, verse 24, is not this why you are wrong, that you do know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And by the way, that doesn't mean you become an angel when you die. What all that Jesus is saying here is the angels don't marry. And so you are, when you, when you rise in the resurrection, you don't marry just like the angels don't marry. He's not extending the comparison beyond that. But that's an important passage. So Jesus very clearly in the New Testament teaches there's no marriage in heaven. Then Jesus is celibate. Mary is celibate. St. Paul is celibate. And in 1 Corinthians 7, St. Paul says that it's the better path. And the early church takes all of this kind of background and it comes to the conclusion that so, so for instance, if you can say, like in Romans 5, we talk about Jesus being the new Adam. And uh, if we can say Jesus shows us who Adam was supposed to be, Jesus was obedient unto death. And so a lot of, a lot of us will say, and it, perfectly legitimately, isn't that who Adam was supposed to be? That if we know something about Jesus and his fulfillment, doesn't that tell us something about who Adam was supposed to be in the first place? And so, so the church fathers kind of take this and they take all this data that says from the New Testament that says there's no marriage in heaven. Jesus is the new founder of a new human race and, and he's the new Adam and Mary's the new Eve and the new Adam and the new Eve are celibate. Intriguing, right? It's fascinating. If that's the case for Adam and Eve or even you play that out and that is the most important thing, how does society carry on? Yeah, this is the proper question. I was hoping you would ask that because if you didn't, I would have to ask it. <laughs> so the you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. You sound. <laughs> I'm glad I found it. Uh, you sound like uh, Joni. Um, but anyway, old friend of mine, Joni, she would always say, "You're welcome." <laughs> yeah, that, that's the right question, and, and people legitimately will bring up. So in Genesis one, when God creates Adam and Eve. He's the first commandment in the Bible is God says, be fruitful and multiply. And so people who look at this, they'll say, and who want to take an opposing position. Yeah. They'll say, what do you mean? There's no active sexuality in the garden of Eden. How can Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply? This is before the fall. The fall happens in chapter three. This is Genesis 1, 27, 28. And that's, a, that's the right question. So the father's, take this up. And the early church fathers talk about this. So 
what the, at the end of the day, what they say, and I love this. This is this is off the charts profound stuff. But what I, I hope one of the things that comes out of this podcast is I feel like oftentimes in Christianity, we don't get meat. We don't get meat and potatoes oftentimes. And that's I don't mean to be judgmental of other places. Sometimes in a homily, it's really hard to go this deep into a topic. Yeah. I can't I can't teach on this topic in 10, well, let's be honest, 20 minutes. Right. We're at 45 minutes on this podcast right now. I can't go into that. And so I understand sometimes why it doesn't get out. But this is this is not ancillary stuff. This is the great teachers of the Christian faith wrestled with this question. And virginity is there the fathers didn't tend to say celibacy, they would refer to virginity. The fathers of the church understand virginity is not a side issue to Christianity, but it being right at the heart of what Christianity is about. And we don't get mean potatoes. And so I hope this is helpful for some of you out there. You don't have to agree with the early church fathers on this, but what I have found is that most people don't even, these are some of the greatest minds and teachers of the Christian faith. And people don't even know what they said because we don't talk about them. Right. So what the fathers say to your question, so how can Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply? And how can they at the same time be virginal is the way the fathers would say it. Gosh, how is that possible? Well, here's how they answer. They say that what sin does is it divides things. Okay. So that's very clear from the Genesis story is that in Genesis, after the fall, Adam and Eve are divided from each other. Mm Mm-hmm. There's and, and as you watch scripture develop between chapter three and chapter 11 of Genesis, sin creates division. 11 is the Tower of Babel. Sin creates division where all the languages are divided. And what God does, part of the new Adam and the new Eve, I love this stuff, is that God is reuniting things that in our world have been divided by sin. So Adam, when you study scripture closely, Adam in the Garden of Eden is very clearly a priest. But he's also a husband. And so the church would say that in Jesus and Mary, the things that have been divided, the good things that have been divided are one in the Garden of Eden. And so Jesus, yes, he's not married, he's celibate, but he's virginal, but he's also the spouse of the church. Mary is virginal. And she's, she's, she, you can say of Mary that she is virgin and she's mother and she's wife. Oh, dude, this is deep. It's profoundly, isn't that yeah, beautiful? And that's so, crazy. so this is all, by the way, this is, this is Balthazar's treatment of this that I'm building off of, if you're curious. But Balthazar is going to quote the church fathers at length on this issue. And not just the church fathers, by the way, he's going to quote the great medieval thinkers like St. Thomas Aquinas who talk about this as well. And in heaven, right, what, what Balthazar will submit and what many of the church fathers will say is that heaven is, there is a wedding in heaven. It's called the marriage feast of the lamb. There is a wedding in heaven, but in heaven, virginity and marriage will not be exclusive. And we won't be, and also what happens in heaven, this is not necessarily where I wanted to go with this, but in heaven, we won't be married to just one person. Heaven is the wedding of the church with Christ as the groom of the church. Um, so one more thing, and let me answer this, and then I'll throw it back to you. 
the last thing I would just say about this. So, so what the fathers believe is that Jesus and Mary teach us something about what Adam and Eve were supposed to be. And different ones of them come up with different answers to this. So St. John Chrysostom, for instance, says that prior to the fall, there would have been multiplication of offspring the way that Mary did, that it would have been virginal. Oh. That Mary shows us who Eve was supposed to be. Others disagree with that. So St. Augustine changes his mind over the course of his life. And St. Thomas Aquinas takes the same line as St. Augustine. And what he says is there would have been physical intercourse before the fall, but that it would not, it would have been in such a way that our passions or our lust, these kinds of things, that they would not have been there. That it would have been a pure act of the intellect and the will and a pure act of love. And that our, our like kind of physical desires that now seem to run the show. Yeah. That those things would have been at the very least ordered and maybe even absent. And that's the view that St. Thomas Aquinas. So very pure relationship. Yeah. And so so if you think about it, right, like after the fall and just, just look at the world today, even in really good marriages, in the best of marriages, there's, there's desires, there's fears, there's sometimes um, domination that can happen and it can happen both ways. And the fathers look at that and they say, something's wrong here. And what if there were a perfect friendship between man and woman that could be fruitful, uh, but, you know, didn't have, but, and these things were absent, these kind of passions. Dang. Yeah. Isn't that profound stuff? And so this is why, by the way, so so in the early church, there's a heavy emphasis on celibacy, on virginity, heavy emphasis. And this, the early church, the nascent church, uh, that's a big word, nascent, just to, to be born. The, okay. the early church was, had a very heavy emphasis on virginity and it was a small church. It wasn't, we always joke in the companions that Our Lady of Lords is probably as big as the entire diocese of Hippo where Augustine was the bishop. It was oh, a small church yeah. really in the beginnings, but in terms of emphasis, virginity held a very important place. So how does that then translate to the priesthood? So the priesthood is one, so this has been divided is what is at least what Baldazar would say. So again, Adam is priest, but he's also married and he's also the father of the human race. Yeah. And so both married people, and this is, I think this is super beautiful is that in heaven, in a way that we don't really understand here, heaven's going to unite things in a way that things are divided on earth. So another thing Balthazar says is he says, Adam would have been kind of like St. Francis of Assisi, poor, but also everything incredibly rich, everything belonged to him. He was the Lord of the earth. And, he's, and so in heaven, there's this idea that there can be a poverty that is wealthy. There is a virginity that is fruitful. There is a um, obedience that is the highest freedom. But after the fall, that these things kind of fell apart. And so anyway, so the thing I was going to get to with your question is, I think this is great for both married people and priests alike. I look at married people and, you know, I always joke about Patrick walks home, walks in the door, (laughs) Steph rubs his shoulders, hands him a bourbon, kisses him on the cheek and says, I love you so much. And she smells beautiful and she is beautiful and everything's great. 
And I think married people look at priests and like, oh my gosh, no screaming kids. No one to worry about except yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Silence. You get to sleep in when you have a day off. And, and I think one of the things that this teaching is about is that heaven is going to, it's a place that all of us can build towards in this life where we have the fullness of God's blessings. And so Adam and Eve, right? Eve can be a virgin and mother, just like Mary's virgin mother. Adam can be priest and father. And heaven, right? In your married life, you and Steph are working towards the fullness. And in my priestly life, I'm working towards the fullness. And so those things have been divided, but we can both use our states of life as graces of God to say both of these are passed to heaven. Uh, but, but they have to be transformed by the cross. But yeah, the, these things are at least worth wrestling with. Why is Jesus virginal? Why is Mary virginal? Why is Paul virginal? Why does Paul say that the virginal path is appropriate? And if you don't think about this kind of protology means the very beginning of humanity and eschatology, the very end, it's hard to make sense of what the New Testament says about this. Yeah. So, so why is it though? Like why? So the, so the, the virginal is a, maybe this will help a little bit for the, the church fathers. One more parallel between Eve and Mary, by the way, what type of creature is Satan? What is he? Serpent. He appears as a serpent, but he's not really a serpent. What a fallen angel. Exactly. Yes. Yep. So, so, so Satan's an angel. And in Genesis 3, Satan tempts Eve. But St. Irenaeus will point this out. So Eve is disobedient to God, yep. and she listens to an angel. Mary, oh, the I new love Eve, it. isn't that beautiful? Yes. The new Eve, and so the church fathers will say they're both virgins. The new Eve, Mary, also listens to an angel, but she's obedient. Just like, just like Adam and Jesus are contrasted, even Mary are contrasted. And so, but what the fathers will say about this is that virginity is not, and again, building off all the same texts we've used here, but especially like Matthew 19 with the rich young man, where Jesus commends celibacy in first Corinthians seven, where St. Paul does, the church fathers will say virginity is not just a physical virginity because a lot of people look back at this and they say, oh, the church fathers were just prudes. And they just thought that sex was dirty and they were bad. That's not, that's not the case. Some of them probably did lean that way. That is true. There are some of them that did. But there's a deeper point. And the yeah. deeper point is that virginity in the scripture, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, virginity is meant to be a sign of an undivided heart. Okay. And so Mary, the, the, the reason that Mary's virginity matters, it's like, who cares? You know, why are Catholics so big on Mary being perpetual virgin? Yeah. Like, who cares? Well, the reason the early church cares about this, and the early church is unanimous on Mary's perpetual virginity, which is amazing. But the reason it matters is because Mary's relationship to God is not that God is one part of her life. It's all of it. It's all of it. And the church still teaches this today. What the church teaches about my virginity is that being a celibate priest, it's not primarily meaning, most people think it's about being more available. Oh, Father Brian doesn't have a wife and kids, so give me a cell phone number so you can be available at all hours of the day. That's not what it's about. Virginity is about an undivided heart. And so what it's meant to say is that my 
my priesthood in my life with Jesus is a hundred percent. It's my everything. My, my job as pastor at Lord's is not a job. It's my life. Yeah. And it's my whole heart. And so that's why this, this matters so much. And there's, there's about a billion questions that rise up from this. And you might, and again, I just want to emphasize for our listeners, there are people way smarter than me and much holier than me who would disagree with the church fathers. I think the church fathers, I find this intriguing. I think it has a rationale. I think it's clear in scripture that this line of thought leads to a clear conclusion. But you Which just, part you're talking about the, the uh, virginity or Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve being virgins. Yes. I think, okay. the, I think the scriptural pattern and logic leads to that conclusion clearly. I think I do. You can disagree with me. That's okay. And, and again, many people do, but most people have never heard this. Right. And so celibacy just looks like this add-on. It looks like an arbitrary rule that has nothing to do with anything. And why is the church so mean to priests and yeah. nuns? Can't they, wouldn't there be more priests and more nuns if we just let them have a nicer life and we weren't so hard on them? And they miss all of this. Totally. Oh, that's fascinating. Because I think, yeah, from the, as soon as you walk in, especially like in a, walking into RCIA, right? And you're trying to wrap your head around this whole thing. It's like, what do you mean, especially if you're coming from like the Protestant world, yep. you know, and you look at a lot of the pastors and you cited the book, like in that, in that example, it's like, they have a ton of kids, they're multiplying like crazy. They have their wife and they're leading this church. And they seem more relatable too, because they get up in their sermons and they are more relatable in a sense, right? They can, I think Deacon Darrell, when he would preach, he would talk about how it was hard when his boys were teenagers and when right. Katie was a teenager. And people in the pews can say, oh, I get this guy. He, and he understands me, but sorry to interrupt. No, I to- that's 100%. That's right. And then when you come in and you're like, wait, what? What do you mean they can't be married and they have to wear these crazy outfits on Sunday that change once every four months? Like, <laughs> right. it, it looks like a rule that's been around forever that has never been changed. And you kind of just wonder why. And then you think like, well, FP deserves somebody or whatever it is. But I remember the first time you kind of, explain that to me and the undivided heart portion. Yeah. And it it really kind of landed hard for me, like mm-hmm. like in a in a good way. Yep. That was like, wow, that is because I think you've said that too though. Like now with Gianna and it's as I'm trying to learn scripture and and all that, like there are other commitments. Like it's harder yeah. to kind of dive into my, you know, daily readings or prayer time or any of that kind of stuff. Yep. Uh, that you've made the, that ultimate commitment to. Yeah. And, and again, and I think an important caveat here, the church does not teach that someone is automatically holy because they embrace celibacy. Right. They, they very seriously, both of those paths lead to holiness if we choose it. And so there are plenty of celibates and I'm, I'm guilty of this. Uh, if you live celibacy without poverty, that's no sign of God's kingdom because the, the evangelical councils, this could be another topic, but poverty is, is supposed to do the same thing. Really poverty is supposed to say, God's my everything. My life is undivided. My treasure is not, you know, my new Tesla. My treasure is Jesus. And poverty is the sign that my life is given over and same thing with obedience. And so, so being celibate 
is not a guarantee. The church tends to say it's a privileged path if you embrace it the right way. But you know, we we could be here forever. But but in your life, the same thing is going to happen for you and stuff. But 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 I would encourage you. It's not automatic. You and stuff have to choose. Yeah. Your so your sexuality as a married couple has to be crucified. It has to be lived in a way that the world doesn't live it. Right. Like the church's teaching on contraception is I've I live it because I because I love virginity. Yeah. But I imagine for a married couple, and I know for married couples because they tell me it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. It's a crucified sexuality. It is not this like, oh, well, priests just have the harder path and we do our own thing. That's not that way. All of us have to embrace uh, virginity in a certain way. Like, But your virginity is lived in your marriage. It gives you chastity, which is the proper word. Chastity is required in marriage and chastity just means that your sexuality is properly integrated yep. with love. Uh, you have to live a life of poverty where your financial decisions it's going to look different. You know, you're not going to be, and for both of us, you know, I, you know me, I'm well taken care of, but as a father and a husband, you don't get to just do it with your money, whatever you want. Your money now is under the obedience to your family and same thing. And then again, an obedience is the third one. Your life has to be handed over. And so all of us as Christians, in some way, we have to live these three. It's going to look different according to if you're married or if you're a priest or a religious sister, if you're a diocesan priest versus a Franciscan. But all of us need to own these things in a different way than we would if we weren't Christians. In the old life. Uh, yeah, the old man. If you, if you don't mind, I think next podcast, I think you just brought up something there. Um, I just want time for it now. But I would love to dive into the poverty piece. Because you know, a couple yep. weeks ago at mass, it was the the reading on you know uh, I think it's we had Father V told and that his message was that you know wealth is not a bad thing, correct? But it's hard to kind of contrast that when you hear the word poverty and how you live that. Like I understand what you're saying, where it's like yeah, it's not my money. I can't just you know go take a solo trip and venture to Italy and leave Gianna and Steph at home. But how is it okay? Is wealth okay? Like you look at things like Legatus or any of these other type of things that are individuals who have found wealth. Yes. But I think you can live, if you don't wrestle with that topic either, you either judge them or you want to live a, a super, um, you know, a, a literal obedience to poverty mm -hmm. and really try to kind of maintain that. So I think it's a very, it's a super interesting conversation that I, even myself, I still wrestle with yep. day to day. Yeah, that'd be a great topic. And I do think one quick line on that would be <clears throat> you and I know some wealthy people. And I, I honestly, I I'm blown away by how many in, in Denver, how many wealthy Catholics live this very well, because the, the big issue is not simply wealth. It's where's your heart. Yeah. And so the church's father V told right, the church's message is not that wealth is evil, but that it's dangerous is the way I say it. Oh. It's not it's not evil, but it is dangerous because it can capture your heart. Yeah. But we know many wealthy people. I would venture I know probably at least 10 couples, I would say, who have serious money and who'd seem, you know, they're not perfect, but who seem pretty detached from their wealth. 
and they live it well and they're very generous. And also they want their kids to understand that this is not what it's about. Totally. And then you could also have people who don't have a lot of money, whose heart is completely obsessed with wealth. Yeah. That's a much worse position. And so, and so we, we should talk about that. That's a great topic. Part three, <laughs> states of life. Part, part three. three. If I scandalize you today, I apologize. It was not my intention. I didn't scandalize anybody. No. But these are things it's we're things to wrestle about, with. Wrestling with. It's very deep stuff. I was going to quote some church fathers, but we'll end here today. Give us a like. We uh, uh, we're amazed that anybody listens to this at all. <laughs> but thank you for doing so. We enjoy it. We think it's um, hopefully a, a ministry that brings other people closer to Jesus and to His church. So give us that thumbs up, spread the word. Uh, you can send us an email. I have not been great about answering emails. Neither have I, and I'm just getting back to it. I have not. I know a lot of pressure was on FB to do that. So hopefully I'll start picking that up. But a, a lot of people write in with their you know, theological questions, and then I just defer to FB because I yeah. can't answer it. So yes, rant at lordsdenver.org. Share us with your friends. See you next time.